Well, welcome back. Uh, this week, Gentle and Lowly, Chapter 16. Um, maybe long, maybe short. Just depends on how things go. So, um, as we usually start, I'm going to start by reading a prayer out of the Valley of Vision. Just to get us started. This one's called First Day Morning Worship. O Lord, we commune with you every day, but weekdays are worldly days, and secular concerns reduce heavenly impressions. We bless you, therefore, for the day sacred to our souls. When we can wait upon you and be refreshed, we thank you for the institutions of religion by use of which we draw near to you and you to us. We rejoice in another Lord's Day when we call off our minds from the cares of the world and attend upon you without distraction. Let our retirement be devout, our conversation edifying, our reading pious, our hearing profitable, that our souls may be quickened and elevated. We are going to the house of prayer. Pour upon us the spirit of grace and supplication. We are going to the house of praise. Awaken in us every grateful and cheerful emotion. We are going to the house of instruction, give testimony to the word preached, and glorify it in the hearts of all who hear. May it enlighten the ignorant, awaken the careless, reclaim the wandering, establish the weak, comfort the feeble-minded, make ready a people for their Lord. Be a sanctuary to all who cannot come. Forget not those who never come. And do not and do thou be so upon us, benevolence toward our dependents, forgiveness toward our enemies, peaceableness toward our neighbors, openness toward our fellow Christians. Lord, we come before you this morning and we are grateful for your grace and mercy. And only those that have truly repented of their sins can truly understand your grace and mercy. Father, Open our hearts to your mercy and your compassion and help us to see it freshly today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, who is God? That's the first question he asks in chapter 16. Who is God? Now, I'm going to stray a little bit from... Not really stray. Um, I'm going to reorder the direction that he went um, because I think it it applies well to this idea of God is compassionate and gracious, understanding that. Um, So I'm going to actually start in Exodus 33, where he starts in Exodus 34. I'm going to start the chapter before because I think the understanding of what's leading up to Exodus 34 is helpful. So Exodus 33:18, who is God? And Moses said, I pray you show me your glory. Show me your glory. So most of you have read this, at least I hope you have, um, or you've heard it. And we know what's coming. But in our fallenness, what would you expect the answer to be? Show me your glory. Is might 
Is that what you said? Yes. The God of the Old Testament that that a society tends to, to 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 point to, right? The God of vengeance, the God of wrath, the God the God who created all of the stars and the solar system and the universe and the mighty mountains and the deep oceans and this God of greatness. It's it's that's the God we default to in our mind. But who does God say he is? Verse 19. I myself will make all of my goodness pass before you. Well, goodness, that's kind of talked about this last last season when we were going through the first part of the book. And what is God's goodness? But God explains himself. Let's continue. And I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. God defines his own glory in his goodness, which is demonstrated through his graciousness and his compassion. Our, our, our natural fallenness, and he gets into this in the book. He, he, he talks about how because of Genesis chapter 3, and if you know me, you know I love the book of Genesis. Because of Genesis chapter 3, Not only are we fallen, not only are we sinful, but our minds are warped and our minds are warped in such a way that we see God not the way he wants us to see him. So he says in the book, and I don't want to jump ahead here um, because this is just so good. Page um, 151, he says, the Christian life from one angle is the long journey of letting our natural assumption about who God is over many decades fall away, being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who he is. This is hard work. It takes a lot of sermons and a lot of suffering to believe that God's deepest heart is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. The fall in Genesis not only sent us into condemnation and exile, the fall entrenched in our minds dark thoughts of God, thoughts that are only dug out over multiple exposures to the gospel over many years. Now, maybe you're somebody who's a lot farther along than I am, and, I, and if you are, praise God for that. But I know my mind naturally defaults back to, but I blew it again. When are you going to come for me, God? So this multiple years of being reminded over and over and over again of God's graciousness and God's compassion is a true mercy of his for us. So... We talked about his graciousness and his compassion. Well, let's turn to chapter 34, which is where Dane Orland takes us, verses 6 and 7. Then Yahweh passed by in front of him and called out. And, and some, the passage that he quotes says, the Lord, the Lord. Mine says, Yahweh, Yahweh, God. What does that mean? I am, I am God. Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. 
Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the sins of the father to the children and grandchildren to the third and the fourth generation. So in the book, this is what he says on page 146. Exodus 34, 6-7 is not a one-off descriptor, a peripheral passing comment. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann gives this text special attention in his theology of the Old Testament, calling it, here it is, an exceedingly important, stylized, quite self-conscious characterization of Yahweh, a formulation so studied that it may be reckoned to be something of a classic normative statement to which Israel regularly returned, meriting the label credo. Well, what does credo mean? Remember, I like to define terms. So what does credo mean? Confession comes from the word creed, which means I believe. So I keep coming back to this because I keep having conversations with people in my weekly lives that um, the God of the Old Testament was so vengeful and so angry. And and these are the conversations that I keep coming back to. I I work in a public school. I have conversations with um, a lot of public school teachers who who are very... um, if not anti-God in word, they are indeed. And this idea that 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 God is he he is the Old Testament just doesn't show him correctly. Well, what does the Old Testament show of him? So those of you that I've I've asked to read, we've already seen what Moses said in Exodus chapter thirty-four. So Moses also speaks of this again in Numbers chapter fourteen. So again, focus, compassion, mercy. Um, and But don't forget, it's as, as if he's saying, don't forget, if you don't repent, there is no compa- compassion and mercy, and there is judgment coming. But again, this is Moses, so let's find somebody different to, to, to check on. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 9. So we're talking about the prophet Nehemiah. Who's got Nehemiah 9? Even in their disobedience, his compassion and his mercy continues to flow. Who has Nehemiah 13.22? Steadfast love. Um, another translation of the word compassion. Okay? Um, so that was, we've heard from Moses, we've heard from Nehemiah. Let's look at David, considering the greatest of the kings of Israel before Christ. Um, Psalm 86, verses 5 and verses 15. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive, and abundant loving kindness to all who call upon you. But you, O Lord, are 
Verse 5, he's good. What does that goodness look like? Mercy and abundant loving kindness. Uh, What about uh, chapter 103, verse 8? What about 145, verse 8? Uh, this is David, folks. The murderer, the adulterer. Okay? He's talking about a God who is abundant in mercy and graciousness and compassion. So, okay, well, we've talked about three. Let's cover a couple more. Jeremiah. Uh, let's talk about uh, Jeremiah the prophet, Lamentations 3.32. Although he causes grief, there's an abundant loving kindness and compassion. What about um, the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 63? I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord and the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. And the prophet Joel, Joel chapter 2. 213, uh, so rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. And he relents from doing harm. Now, you guys have been uh, in my Sunday school, teaching with me Sunday school um, for a while now, and this is not unusual for me, right? We, we, we basically machine gun the scriptures. We go through scripture and we hit as much as I can possibly hit. Why do I do that? What's the point of that? It's like common, all these are common themes or common words in all of them, but slow to anger. All I've noticed that was in all of them. Is this Greg's idea of what Scripture is teaching? This is God's idea of who He is, and He's letting us know that from the beginning in Genesis to the end in Malachi in the Old Testament, that He is trying to tell you who He is. I do these things to help you see this isn't these are not my ideas these are his ideas and until you see these connections throughout the old testament the whole old testament John talks about how how every time we go into the old testament we see Christ in the old testament well you should be seeing Christ everywhere you go in the old testament because Christ and God are one so if we're seeing God we're seeing Christ Okay, so this is important. Um, now, the book of Jonah, there's two more in the Old Testament, and they actually are connected, uh, so I want you to, to see this. Uh, Jonah, um, it's actually the verse that he talks about in the book, is uh, Jonah 4.2, but I want to back up for a minute. Uh, the book of Jonah is about a prophet who didn't want to do what God told him to do. Okay, to the point where uh, go this way, so he turns around and books it the other way as fast as he can. Okay, getting on a ship, trying to get someplace where he can hide, as if he could hide from God. But we get to verse chapter three, and again, God's talking to Jonah. Now the word of Yahweh came to Jonah the second time, saying, second time, um, isn't there mercy and graciousness and God's kindness just in that phrase? I'm coming to you again. 
Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out to it this very call which I am going to speak to you. So Jonah went, and according, according to the word of Yahweh, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Then Jonah began to go into the city one day's walk and called out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And the word reached the king, and he arose from his throne laid his mantle aside, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat on the ashes, and cried out and said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, animal, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat, and do not let them drink. Both man and animal must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God with their strength, that each man may turn from his evil way, from the violence which is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn away from his burning anger, so that we will not perish. To relent and to turn away. To relent and to turn away. So, if God is truly a God of judgment, He wouldn't have given them 40 days. He'd have just taken care of it. He wouldn't have given Jonah a second chance. He would have just taken care of him. And what's Jonah's argument at the beginning of chapter 4? And this was a great evil to Jonah, and he became angry. And he prayed to Yahweh and said, Ah, O Yahweh, was not this the word to myself? I said to myself when I was still in my own land. And I flee flee to Tarshish because I knew you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents from concerning evil. Um, Jonah's a prophet, folks. He's not just some run-of-the-mill person. He is the prophet in the land at this time. So he's speaking what at this point, going back to, to Exodus, he's seen and heard and seen and heard through all of the, the, the history passed on of God's graciousness and compassion. And he knows what kind of God he serves. And he knows that if they repent, that God's going to be, uh, is going to relent from his evil and forgive them. And he doesn't want it. But what's so interesting is you get to um, the book of Nahum, chapter 1, verse 3. Um, actually, chapter 1, verse 1, is the or- oracle of Nineveh. So this is the prophet Nahum, a hundred years after Jonah. hundred years after Jonah. Who's got a prophecy against the city of Nineveh. And this is what it says. A jealous and avenging God is Yahweh. Yahweh is avenging and wrathful. Yahweh is avenging against his adversaries. And he keeps his anger for his enemies. Verse 3, Yahweh is slow to anger and great in power. And Yahweh will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That's that, that connection continues through all of the Old Testament. Even to Nahum, a hundred years later, he's still proclaiming to them, do you remember a hundred years ago? God relented on your evil. And that is still the God of compassion that is here now. But if you don't repent, evil is coming. Well, what, what's where's all this go? Uh, he quotes... In the book, Psalm 138, verses 5 and 6. And they will sing the ways of Yahweh, for great is the glory of Yahweh. For Yahweh is high, yet he sees the lowly. But the one who exalts himself, he knows from afar. Well, what's the key? What's the piece here? What, what's the piece here that where compassion and mercy come out versus God's 
anger and justice and wrath come out. There, there's, there's one connecting piece here that, that help us dis, you know, determine where God's going to go when, he, when this decision is made. Well, in the book, he, he goes into God is slow to anger. He said that in Exodus, right? He says that in Nahum. He said that in a number of the verses you guys read. God is slow to anger. Well, we don't understand that. I know I don't. Because Steinberg is fast to anger. Right, Sean? Right, Pam? And ask my students at school. The anger of Steinberger comes out like that. The minute something is done wrong, ask my children at home. But not God. He's slow to anger. And he mentions these passages, uh, these books, uh, Deuteronomy, 1st and 2nd Kings, and Jeremiah, where it's talking about who God is, and it says that God is provoked to anger. Well, I don't need to be provoked. Anything makes me angry. Um, but God, think about it. Everything that Israel did, and God still called them His chosen people. God still took care of them. He still provided an angel of protection for them. He, he has to be provoked to anger. Unlike us, who Hebrews uh, chapter 10, verse 24 says we are to provoke each other to love and good deeds. Our fallen heart naturally springs to anger, but we have to work at love and good deeds. That is the direct opposite of that. The, one of the phrases he uses in the book last week, uh, the photo negative. Um, we, are, uh, we are a photo negative of who he is. He is provoked to anger, but he, he oozes grace and mercy and compassion. We are, we are, we ooze anger and we have to be provoked to, to love and to compassion and to mercy. So, and it comes back, we come back to Exodus chapter 33 and I want you to see this, how this even plays, even plays for Moses. Exodus chapter 33, verse 20. Um, Moses' request was, show me your glory. And God says to Moses, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Okay? Well, let, let's, let's, I'm going I'm to back up even further on this. Remember, God is provoked. He's provoked to anger. Um, at the beginning of sorry I wrote it down and then I looked in the wrong spot okay so um, verse 5 Yahweh said to Moses say to the sons of Israel you are a stiff necked people should I go up in your midst for one moment I would consume you that, that's that anger, right? Stiff-necked, what's that mean? Um, you like to provoke God. I mean, go back and read through the book of Exodus. Every time they have a chance to show how much they trust and love God, they're complaining. And complaining, my provoke is, is like that. And God put up with it for 34 chapters before he says... 
you're so provoking me that if I were to come in the midst of you, I would destroy you. To the point where he says, God says, I'm willing to let him go. Moses says, if you let them go, let me go. And then he said, you say to me, bring up these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. I have known you by name. God says, I have known you by name and you have found favor in my sight. This is interesting. So now I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you so that I may find favor in your sight. What provides finding favor? Knowing him, knowing his ways, right? Um, He says, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. You know the interesting thing about that phrase? My presence will go with you. In the Hebrew, that's plural. The you is plural. I will go with all of you. I will give you rest is in the singular you. I will go with all of them. I will give you rest. That just reaches out and grabs me. Moses is known as what? He's known as a humble man, right? If you talk about humility, if you look through Scripture, they talk about Moses being humble. Remember Psalm 138? God leans toward the lowly. Right? So the connection between grace and mercy and not getting God's wrath is being lowly. He says, you can't see my face. You know the most amazing thing? When you get to John chapter 1, verse 14, what does he say? What does it say? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. So the shadow in, in Exodus where you can't see my face, you can see my back, you, see, you, have, you continually see my grace and mercy, but it's as if in a shadow and you get to John chapter 1 and the Son of God walks into the picture and you see him face to face. You see his glory. You see his mercy. You see his compassion for three years just oozing out on Israel who doesn't deserve it. Just another connection of the God of the Old Testament, his grace and his mercy is the same person as Christ in the New Testament who physically demonstrates as a man the grace and mercy of God to the people of Israel. And through his death and his resurrection, demonstrate that same grace and mercy to us. But it requires humility. Greg doesn't get that because um, he teaches Sunday school every now and then. Greg doesn't get that because he preaches once in a while. Greg gets it because he didn't deserve it. And Christ paid his sacrifice for his sins. Caleb doesn't get it because he's a great dad. Caleb gets it because he has repented and accepted Christ's sacrifice for his sins. It's not what we do, it's what he does. And understanding that there's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves that merits that mercy and that compassion and that loving kindness 
but only through what Christ has done for us merits that for us. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful. We, are etern- we have to be eternally grateful that even in our many, many sins, even after our repentance and our acceptance of what Christ has done for us, we continue to sin, and, and you have the right for every sin to offer judgment. But because of Christ's sacrifice, there is only mercy and grace for those who come to you. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your compassion. Help us to see it through the week. Provoke us to love and good deeds. In Jesus' name, amen.